Welcome, friends, to this episode of Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. It's hard to capture what Andrea Allen means to my coffee career, or I imagine to the coffee career of others. I was definitely not the only one who watched the 2018 United States Barista Championships and thought, this will be the year that she wins. And I don't cry a lot, but I cried when Andrea didn't win last year. And I cried when she placed fifth this year. And I think for many baristas, they felt upset and confused seeing her not win. Because to so many, she represents what we want our champion to be. Andrea Allen is the co-founder and owner of Onyx Coffee Lab in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I'm honored to share this interview with her. I realized quickly after I started talking to her two things, though. Number one, I don't actually know that much about Andrea besides what she's represented in my head. And I hope this interview gives her a better sense of just how incredible she is. Two, I've been saying her name wrong pretty much the entire time I've known her. Not Andrea, Andrea. I clarify this with her in the interview, and I still routinely screw up the pronunciation. So something to keep in mind in this interview. Please don't send me angry DMs. I know that I messed up, and I'm sorry. Andrea is the champion that I want and the coffee leader that I want to be. Here's our interview. Hey friends, welcome to this episode of Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez and I am thrilled to have Andrea Allen on the show today. I don't think I've ever been more thrilled to have someone on this podcast. Uh, So thanks Andrea for being here. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm just honored that you've asked me to come on. So thank you. Andrea is the co-owner of Onyx Coffee Lab in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I think a lot of our guests probably know who you are, either through barista competitions or just through Onyx's reputation. But for those who maybe haven't heard of you, could you talk a little bit about what you do and how you got into coffee? Yeah, sure. So um, my husband and I started Onyx in 2012, and um, we are a roaster and retailer out of Arkansas. Um, I originally got into coffee. I just started working at a shop uh, here in Fayetteville um, a long time ago when I first graduated from high school. And um, I, yeah, I just loved everything about making drinks, making uh, connections with customers. And so really, I just never... I just never left. So I've been fortunate enough to have lots of opportunities. And um, as Ashley mentioned, I've been competing in barista competitions for the last five years. So that's a lot of how I know um, a lot of people in the industry. So, yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show in particular, and I think one of the reasons a lot of people might even be listening right now is you've competed a lot. In the last 2017 and the 2016 Barista Championships, you came in second place. And I think this year, people really, I want to say expected, but maybe not, but I know I did, expected you to win. And that didn't happen, Um, which is okay. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of what happened at the end. But um, for those who didn't see your routine, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of even started the process of preparing for barista competition and thinking about what you wanted to talk about and kind of just all of it. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, so for the last several years, this question has been on my mind, which is um, who will grow our coffee? And so um, there's, in various countries, aging coffee producers that don't have um, people in line to take over their farms. And it's, it's becoming more and more of a trend, at least from my point of view. And so um, young people are just not super interested in taking over um, an agricultural project that is characterized by poverty and debt. And so um, I've been wanting to talk about this at competition for the last couple of years, but haven't really found a way to, to frame it because it's a huge issue and it, it's different depending on what country you're in and there's not there's not really an answer and so um, so this this time around um, actually last summer my husband called me from Nariño and he said I just met a producer that is so inspiring and is doing things in her community that are just incredible and I want to talk to you about it um, now that that um, producer, her name is Donna Raquel, and I did not end up using her coffee in, in competition um, this time around, but but really like that's kind of how this whole idea about um, legacy, which is really how I ended up framing the my presentation, got started was just about like you know what are what are we leaving behind, what is important to talk about, um, and you know, what is, what is the purpose of what we're doing here in specialty? And so that's really like where the, the seed of this year's presentation started. Um, and so, yeah. Something about your routine that it really struck me was how, how well you were able to weave your personal narrative into the story about aging coffee farmers. And also at the same time, bringing up very concrete facts, like we are paying less for coffee than we were 40 years ago. So how did you, how do you do this? Like, how do you come up <laughs> with an idea and take it from idea to 15 minute presentation to the judges? Yeah. Well, um, I always start just by like writing out what all my thoughts are on a particular issue. And then also talking, talking it over with my husband, John. Um, he's our, green buyer for Onyx amongst many other things. And he does pretty much all of the traveling and sees tons and tons of really amazing and really beautiful and really awful things across the world. And so, so really he and I kind of like come up with the conceptual stuff together and then I just do a lot of free writing. And then, um, a lot of that is based on like how I feel about an issue. Um, and then I'll just kind of go back through those thoughts and think like, okay, is, I like this section. Is this, is this a real thing or is this just something I like? And then I try to like draw it into, draw it out more facts. Um, but then when I'm actually building the presentations, I try to think about how the topics like flow together and, um, and really with a topic as large as this, I really just wanted to stay away from, um, one single voice, um, voicing out an answer to a question that I don't think can be answered right now, particularly from where I sit in the coffee industry. I'm, uh, I'm not a producer. I'm not an exporter. I'm not an importer. So, so for me to have a, a, you know, very specific opinion about how a problem on the ground at origin should be solved, I feel like is not as, 
powerful as just asking the question of like, hey, what is going to happen if we don't address these things? And then really like um, I've just found in dealing with people over the years and just doing doing competitions and doing every area of life that being vulnerable and personal with people really creates a connection that facts or challenges or questions don't. And so that's one of the big reasons I try to always leave personal stuff into those, into my presentations, because it just has, I feel like it just has more meaning when it, when I am an active player in, in what I'm presenting, not just like me as a person being on that stage, but me as a person, like explaining how my life does or does not weave in with what I'm discussing or um, how I am contributing to, or how I'm maybe trying to fix an individual problem. What in this presentation felt particularly vulnerable for you to share, or maybe did like any of it feel like you were like exposing yourself in a way that maybe you hadn't before? Yeah. So the, I honestly, it took about six months to fully prepare the presentation just in terms of words that I, that I did this year at nationals. And the thing that kept miss being missing was my, was myself. So the whole theme was like just legacy. What do we leave behind us? Um, how does what we do impact the specialty community right now and later? And it's just hard to, I think for anyone to like write about yourself, talk about yourself in such a way. And so um, I would do lots of drafts and then show them to John and he'd be like, this all is really, really great, but what is your legacy? And I just kept being like, I, I don't know. Like, what do you mean? And he's like, I mean, but what do you want to leave behind? What do you want people to, to hear from this about you? And it just was so hard for me to put that in there because I, it's just a hard thing to think about, um, for me. And so, so really like the vulnerable parts of the presentation were just like talking about how I want to have something to give to my children who are four and unborn, <laughs> born in three and a half weeks, hopefully. Um, like I, I want to set them up to be successful. And, um, and then secondarily, I have a large staff that I really care about and I want to create as many like sustainable jobs for them as I can. Um, but then when I see issues on the farm level um, of producers just continually being in a cycle they can't get out of and mass amounts of young people looking into other industries, it, it, it just makes me wonder like, how, how long does specialty have? Um, how long is what we're doing that we all love going to be like this, um, how long, how viable is Onyx if the specialty market disappears? So, you know, for me, it's like those issues, although they are thousands and thousands of miles away are, are very real issues in my mind. And we have, John and I have discussed in the past, like, well, we probably have 15 years. And then recently we thought, well, maybe we have 10 years. So not to be a doomsdayer, but you know, it was, it was hard for me to like 
put those two facts beside each other, the, the fact of, like, the changing coffee industry and then the fact of, like, me wanting to leave something behind for my, for my children someday. So that was really a hard thing to, for me to verbalize and for me to present on stage. Something that I think is really inspiring about every routine that you've done, and if you haven't seen Andrea compete, watch this year's, but also watch last year's, um, is how, how, how much of a personal connection I think you attempt to make with the judges as well. Um, even this year you stirred the judges espressos for them. And then last year you, that was the washing hands year, right? Yes. (laughs) Um, I, I wonder if that's something that you think about consciously. Um, is it something that goes into the creation of a routine. Cause sometimes when you watch these barista routines, like you think a lot about obviously the coffees that they use and the message that they're saying, but you also think about like what internally goes into it. Like how do you think about the moments that you're creating and how do you make a place for the judges or for the audience in general? So I wonder like what that process looks like for you. Yeah, we absolutely think about that. And, and when I say we, I just mean that John is like so involved in helping like create these experiences. And so um, for me this year, like with the fully preparing every drink and stirring and I was just like, I know that being a judge is really hard. And so you're trying to like listen to everything a competitor says, write everything down, um, taste yes or no, like to the flavor calls in a really quick way. And so my feeling was like, I just want them to just, just have to sit there and enjoy it. Like, that's what I would like to, to do. And so out of that desire came this, like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stir because sometimes if, you know, you're asked to stir for 10 seconds or 10 times, or, you know, that can be just another piece of information. That's like, maybe not, maybe it's important to the way the drink ultimately tastes, but it's something else for them to have to remember and try to execute. And so I, this year I really just wanted them to feel really at home to try to relax and just enjoy the drinks. Um, last year I wanted to, with I, I basically washed all the judges' hands um, or the, the four sensory judges' hands with rose water, which was part of my signature drink experience with aroma. Um, but I also just wanted to like perform a really overt act of service to draw the judges into the presentation to help potentially give them experience an experience maybe they'd never had before. And just as an example of great service that I had experienced, um, in my life and just as a, like a real, um, or just like a real show of, of what I feel like service could look like. Um, and so, so yeah, I definitely think about it from, from every aspect, like what, um, you know, what will connect with the judges? How can I get them more engaged in, in the presentation? How can I make it where they can easily taste the drinks and perform their routine or perform their act of like doing the scoring and everything, um, without having to stress about, um, missing something and, and also without having hopefully without having to stress about me coming back later and being angry that they didn't hear something I had said, or I didn't score high in a certain category because maybe my, uh, routine was too packed full of words. I, I tend to say a lot in my routines, So I try to 
take out wherever I can from whatever aspect that will make it easier for the judges to, to just enjoy what they're, what they're seeing. What's been difficult about competition for you? Has it gotten easier at all as you do it? Hmm. That's a good question. (laughs) Yes and no. Um, there's lots of difficulties about, about the competitions. Um, you, I know you're a competitor and all the competitors, um, out there no it just takes so much time and energy to to really put together a routine to choose a coffee um, to pack everything and get to the event um, you know to just to do all of the things so all of that stuff is is always difficult just in terms of of the actual effort it takes to to make it to a competition and to just get up there and do it however involved or however good or however bad it is it's always very very time and energy consuming um so i think that one of the things that has has not necessarily gotten easier is just making presentations i feel like my my first year at usbc was four years ago and i did a presentation about um a geisha that was processed naturally after my husband requested by the producer that it be processed naturally and how it we ended up paying like way more than its washed exact washed counterpart and how like processing could potentially you know show or give producers like a, another uh, stream of revenue and um, I just remember feeling at the time that that was like the best possible presentation I could ever make and coming out of that year just feeling this kind of like gosh, I, I really wish I had done better because I can't ever make a presentation like that again. <laughs> and just to be honest, I felt like that every single year since then. <laughs> so it's like uh, in the couple of months following following competitions, I'm like, well, I mean, I just I could never do it again. I can never come up with something again. Um, but then in a way that kind of like squeezes me into this place where I'm like forced to go back to the drawing table and like recreate what like my ideas and recreate the presentations and recreate like what's my point of view on coffee um and so i think somehow that process has both gotten more difficult and easier at the same time maybe because i've just been doing it for a while um but it's never it's never easier um year after year to go out and compete because it's such a um it's such a pressured situation and um there's just a lot riding on it every year. So I think I actually get more nervous every year, which doesn't make sense, but that's just, I guess, part of how it goes. No, I think that does make sense. There's, you know, more on the line. And I think you're the, you know, you wouldn't be wrong to assume that there's probably more pressure on you to do well every year as, as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely feel that. And I, um, John likes to remind me every year as I'm freaking out over stuff. He's like, Hey, the whole, whole point of this is like to present ideas, um, to ask the, uh, the industry questions and then just to like represent our business and our family. And he's super supportive. He's like, it doesn't matter if you get first or you get last, like you're going to represent us well, like no matter what. And so, um, competition has definitely been a really big part of us growing our business and like getting our name out there. Um, it's hard when you're 
in Arkansas and people aren't just, uh, industry people aren't just like stopping in to try your new shop because you're, you know, a thousand miles from where they live. So um, competition has been a real great um, avenue for us to introduce ourselves to coffee and then to, um, to just like continually try to ask people questions about about things that we think are important. And so, so definitely I'd say the pressure, it feels more, but um, it also, I don't know, I feel like the, from our point of view, we try to make it where success is not just strictly about winning, because obviously you can't just walk out there and win, so. <laughs> right, so, I mean, there's really kind of like no easy way to get around this because it is what it is, but like, can you talk us through what like this, this year's experience for you and kind of answer like the eternal question of like what happened? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, no, I would love to. So, um, this year was particularly hard for me because, um, I'm, because I'm pregnant and I'm in my third trimester during, during the actual competition. And I actually really tried to, I was really afraid that I would be perceived in a particular way by people at competition or by the judges or I, I just didn't want that to be a handicap if that makes sense um and so but at the end of the day I was so tired and I was not handling the stress of competition very well so after the first day of semifinals I went 10 seconds over time during semifinals and I um which is crazy because I was more prepared this year than I've literally ever been. I have practiced more, way more time um, at the machine, um, just way ahead of where I normally am. And so um, for me to go over time like that, I just was really beating myself up about it. And I was really upset about it. I actually like cried like most of the day because I just assumed that I was not making it back because USBC is so hard. Like you have to have everything on point. And so um, honestly, like that going into that announcement on Saturday, I was just like, well, it's been a good, it's been a good run. Like maybe I'll try again another time, you know? So I was just like, honestly thrilled and super excited to have made it to the finals. Um, and when we got back to our Airbnb that night, my husband and I were just laughing and we were like, wow, this is, <laughs> it's just really funny because we just felt grateful to like have another, have another go at it. And so, um, so then on the, the really, uh, on the finals performance, there were two, two big mistakes that I made and, um, I, I felt really confident going into it. I had a really great practice that morning. Um, my coffee was tasting really good. And so, um, during my practice setup time, I got everything set up really well and I was dialing my coffee in and I just had this moment where I knew it needed to change, but I did not know what to do. And that's not ever really happened to me before. I'm usually pretty, um, usually do well under pressure and I'm usually pretty on point with that. And so um, I just stood there tasting the same shot for like two and a half minutes. And I ultimately decided not to do anything because I was afraid I was freaking myself out. But in retrospect, I should have uh, made my grind a little finer. Um, so I, I think that my coffee, um, in comparison with the, what I was telling the judges it was going to taste like was was not as good as it as it needed to be. So that was the first thing. And then, um, 
yeah, I just didn't give a flavor call for my signature drink. And so that's both of those things are really uncharacteristic for me. And I didn't even know, honestly, that I didn't give the flavor call. Um, I knew I was like way ahead of my normal time, but I was also like kind of busting it to try to make sure that I didn't go 10 seconds over again. And so, um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even know until I got finished. And then, uh, John was like, Hey, I need you to come to the back hidden service alley. Cause I need to tell you something. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what? Like, you know, was my shirt untucked or like, you know, I don't know, like what was, did I have something on my face the whole time? Um, but then he told me what happened and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I can't believe I, like, I, I was just honestly in shock because I never missed those things and I've done so many run throughs. And so I don't know, I just, uh, I can only chalk it up to just it not being the right time. You know, I think it's a, a weird thing, but I, I also know that my coffee wasn't quite where it needed to be either. So I think both of obviously not giving a flavor call, like, uh, hit my score really hard. But even had I given that, I think my coffee wasn't in the place that it needed to be for me to, for me to do the full thing this year. So those, that's those two things. That's what happened. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad that this is on record because I think a lot of people, you know, probably watched your routine and there's only so much that you can tell from just watching something. Yeah. And I, I know people asked me like, what, what happened? And I was like, well, I knew one, I knew that the flavor call thing didn't happen. I realized, I didn't realize that you weren't as confident in your espresso as you wanted to be, um, which sucks. And, and, but like like you said, it is what it is and it happens. It happens to everybody. Um, but something that I think is really interesting, um, I know for me listening to other people talk about you, people still feel this like very kindred spirit with you. They feel like you're their champion, like you represent them. And I wonder what that feels like to you. (laughs) Oh man. It's a, it's a funny thing. I, I feel really honored that people feel that way. And it, it honestly, I mean, I feel a lot of things. It feels great to be liked and thought of so highly and, um, it also feels like kind of, I, I almost feel like a hypocrite in a way because, um, I know so many people from an event or they know me from a presentation and like, there's just so many things, um, about me, just like everyone else that are, are not great. That if those were things were shown, shown to people that they, they might feel differently about me. And I think that that would be totally valid. So I feel really honored that people think of me in that way. And I'm, I'm really honestly just grateful that people are lending an ear to things that I'm saying in competition. Um, I really firmly believe that that's what competition should be for is for us as an industry to discuss issues and solutions and problems. And so just having a place for me to share like what John and I are thinking about is amazing. And then just beyond that, to have people interested to listen, it's definitely not something that I take lightly. And I, I just feel really honored that people, um, tune in to watch that people show up on the floor to hear and that then that people ask me questions about it later. Um, that's, a uh, something I, 
a, a position that I really respect and that I that I take really seriously. So, do you, do you think you of yourself as a leader? Um. Yeah, I do. I uh, I think by um, I think both by by choice by the position I put myself in, just in terms of like our business. Um, whether I want to be or not, like I am a leader here. And so I have to perform in that way. And then also the position that I've put myself in by showing up to competitions, I definitely have put myself in that place. So, so I definitely feel that. And, um, you know, I, I also feel like that in, this is maybe it's going to sound weird, but in a, in a strange way that it, it's like something I've been like called to do or by nature to do. And so, um, there's definitely parts of me that at times like feel like I wish I I didn't have the responsibilities I have in our business or maybe I wish I didn't you know have whatever kinds of things that you might be called to do as a leader but that at the end of the day that like that's kind of like the job I've been given and I'm really grateful to be the one that has been chosen for those things. Something that I'm deeply fascinated by because leaders really fascinate me is seeing the folks from your team out in the world and <laughs> hearing them talk about you and John and them all having great things to say about you. And then likewise, you kind of always turning it back around to them. Mm. Um, in your routine, you even mentioned your staff and how you were hopeful that one day they would leave to do better things and not necessarily better, but like bigger things for themselves or maybe achieve other goals that they have. And I think that that's something that a lot of leaders don't acknowledge or contend with. So I wonder how you think about being a leader to staff and how you think about being a leader to the folks who work under you. Yeah. Thanks. That's, that's nice. Nice to, nice to hear. We sure love our staff and it's, they're, they're like the best part of what we do. I mean, it just is amazing to have relationships with people that you work with, whether it's like very casual people I don't see a lot or whether it's people I work with every day. That's, that's really what makes work and life worth it, I think. Um, yeah, so I mean, I tried, I, it's a very hard thing to balance because I deeply care about our staff, but I also have to maintain distance from them in terms of friendship in many ways because I ultimately am, am the authority figure at our at our business. So I, I head up all of our discipline and policies and make lots and lots of tough decisions in terms of staff members. And so it's, it's a hard line to walk because I want to show care and concern and service towards our staff, but also like uphold a, like a high standard of performance and um, consistency in terms of um, treatment across the board. And so I really um, struggle with both of those things. And I go, I go back and forth, honestly, day to day, week to week on what my approach is to, to our staff. And I try to find, um, I try to find ways to like catch our staff doing a great job um, so that I can tell them that and in a genuine way. Um, I try to find ways to, to serve our different staff members, um, in sometimes really tiny, sometimes bigger, bigger ways. And that can like look different just depending on the, depending on the, uh, on the staff member. And 
um, I really just try to make sure that they that they understand that um, that our when John and I think about Onyx, like we don't think about tile or machines or coffee or you know pastry or whatever. Like we think about our team. Like that's that's what Onyx is. It's not I, I don't know. It's not a physical item. It's the the group of people that make coffee and serve customers and and work with others in the coffee industry like that's what onyx is and so i try to like continually just remind myself like that it's a living breathing organism and you know that i that my role is to make sure that like everything is continually kind of growing and feeding itself and and just going in the right direction and um so that's kind of i guess what my approach to leadership is. (laughs) I mean, there's no one answer and I'm sure that you have learned a lot as you've gone. And I wonder what, what like Andrea or Andrea, like five years ago was like, you know, (laughs) first, first starting Onyx and first kind of being thrusted into this position of, Oh, we own a business now. Now we're the leaders. Like, I wonder what, what lessons you've taken away. Oh yeah. Tons. Um, Tons. In, in the beginning, um, I, I managed a couple of shops for several years before we were shop owners, and that was super helpful. But in the beginning, it was extremely hard to establish my authority as a boss in our um, when I was a manager. Uh, and I know that many ladies out there listening to this understand what that's like. Um, just you know, having to have conversations with staff or vendors or customers, hard conversations where kind of not taken seriously. Um, so I had to work like really hard to establish like, Hey, like if I ask you to do something like you, you, you have to do it. It's not an option. I sound like I'm talking to my four-year-old daughter right now. Cause I tell her that all the time <laughs> too. Still a struggle. Um, you know, so just like fi- figuring out like how do I establish authority in a way that is like kind in a way that like reflect reflects my values, but also in a way that gets the job done. Um, that was really hard to do. Um, you know, I think I, I learned a lot in terms of communication. So I would have employees that, I really liked, I really cared about, and they were mostly doing a good job, but there would just be these things that would happen and that needed to change. But I felt like, well, they're a good staff member. So it's not like I need to like have a disciplinary conversation with them because they understand, like they, they know they shouldn't do that. And I'm sure it's just a phase or like they're in a bad mood or they're having a, they're having a hard like month or six months or whatever. And so I really like had several scenarios that I talked myself out of having a hard conversation to avoid having a hard conversation that ended up in me like letting those employees go because those issues like grew into things that couldn't be changed. And by the time I had the conversation with them, you know, it was too late and it was, I mean, I had, I have one in particular where this girl was like, I mean, I just had no idea that this was happening. Like, how long has this been happening? And, you know, when I told her, I mean, she's just like shocked and like, I would have changed. Like I would have totally heard, heard what you have to say. Like I totally would have done X, Y, Z. And it's honestly that, that particular scenario is one of my biggest regrets in leadership because it was like my unwillingness to like 
potentially like hurt her feelings in a small way so that she could come back into what I was expecting from her that ultimately led to me like just cutting ties with her and how as a leader that's not fair and how that like I can't avoid tough situations just because it feels uncomfortable um so I I say really like that's a huge area I've grown in over the years and just you know trying to trying to like keep some distance from our staff in terms of friendship but also um trying to show care for them and then that way when I do come to them with a tough conversation it's not like that's the only time I've ever talked to them you know that we have a we have a relationship we have a rapport and then that that affords me a place to like voice what I like feel like has to be done or has to be seen or accomplished in in their role and so that's that's definitely one huge huge lesson that I've learned Mm -hmm. I think communication is kind of one of the things that people forget and it's like the easiest tool you have yeah just like being able to be big enough to say like hey maybe I need you to do this or do that so but I think that's also like really real and like really vulnerable of you to share that like that was not something that actually came naturally to you and that you had to work on it um yeah definitely I think also just like admitting admitting when I had made a mistake or admitting when I had been wrong I think that was uh something that I really struggled to bring into our business and just I guess in my life in general but I think I felt like um, like I have to be the authority figure. So like, I can't ever say I made a mistake or like, I can't ever like be perceived as having been like wrong or weak or whatever, because that will undercut my authority. But that actually is just not true. And maintaining a platform where you're like, Nope, I'm never wrong. Never been wrong. Never made a mistake. Like, you know, that that's (laughs) actually like super, uh, destructive to like a team culture where, you know, any human involved in a team culture is going to make mistakes. Like it just is part of it. And just because you're the leader doesn't mean that you're exempt from that. I'm, I'm not sure if I should tell you this, but I'm going to, uh, something (laughs) that like, something that I find really like compelling about you is that I feel like I get to know you so well through your routines and your barista like presentations, but I feel like if I were to like describe you to somebody else, like, I don't know that I would be able to, like, I feel like you're like, I feel like I, I want, I, I like, I don't know anything about you in a weird way. Like, I know that you run this really great business and that you're an incredibly accomplished barista champion, but I feel like you're like, I wonder like how you would describe you. Oh my gosh. I don't know that I, I can answer that. Um, yeah, I think I'm so one I mean, well, I guess particularly in terms of competition, one thing to know about me is that I'm extremely competitive. So, I don't I think anyone that continually enters competitions of any kind is very competitive. And so I um I only go to competition anything where it's acceptable for me to actually be very competitive. So, like playing a casual board game with me is not I just kind of keep myself out of that because, like, friendships are lost over stupid <laughs> board games. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I'm extremely competitive. Um, I'm very stubborn. 
Um, I, I don't like change. I like to say that I'm the wet towel in our business because any new idea, my initial inclination is to come up with 500 ways that it won't work. Um, and I'm kind of at least known around work as, as the person that kind of like takes ideas and makes them actually happen. So just like logistically, um, I don't know. I, I am both very confident in some ways and have very low self-esteem in, in other, in other realms. Um, I don't know. I tend to want to, I, I like validation and confirmation of myself. That's probably like everyone. Um, I don't know. I like, I really like fun. I'm, I'm very into fun. I love jokes, but I'm, <laughs> I'm terrible at telling them. Um, I get lots of laughs at work and it's like, I'm, I'm just, I just always say I'm like, I'm in the worst possible position to try to tell jokes because people like don't know, like, they're like, do I have to laugh? Like she's our boss. So like, I think that was a joke. I have to laugh. Or people are like, oh my gosh, am I supposed to laugh? Cause like, maybe that wasn't a joke, but she's my boss. And if I laugh, it's going to be weird. So it's very like at an employee meeting recently, I don't know why I'm telling you this is like way too much information, but like I made a, like at the very end of the employee meeting, I like acted like I was tearing my womb open and like ripping out a child and just like wailing. Cause I thought it was really like funny. And there were like a lot of people at this meeting that I don't know very well because they work, they work shifts in the shop and I'm in each shop like twice a week or two days a week. So it's like, I don't have a bunch of FaceTime with them. So literally one person started dying laughing and he's worked for us for like two and a half years and everyone else is like in shock. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I should not have done that. Like that. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. And the guy that was laughing was like, guys, it's a joke. It's okay. You can laugh if you want. And like, then people like fake laughed and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is it's just not, it's just not great. So anyway, I'm working on my jokes, but I don't know that they're going to get better. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. No, I'm really glad that you shared that. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I'm not doing it anymore. I just did it a couple of times. And then I was like, this probably is still a little aggressive. So. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see where that's, that's always a challenge. Cause I feel like, <laughs> I, I mean, if you're a manager, if you're a leader in any way, like your personality is always going to, kind of be on on blast like no matter what and so yeah. like if the worst thing that your staff can say about you is that you tell inappropriate weirdly inappropriate jokes <laughs> like I guess yeah. that's like a win um yeah <laughs> how do you think well I mean speaking of which um maybe you should maybe we'll think about like the staff that have been with you for a long time but how do you think they would describe you um I I don't know I I feel like that's something I often wonder about. Like, I'm like, what is, what are people that work with me? Like actually, like, what do they actually think about me? And I, I really can't answer that question. And I, it's something I periodically want to ask some of our staff, like, what do you think? Like, what do you think about this? Or like, what do you think about me? But then I just feel like it's something I'm asking or wondering, like purely for my own self, like 
self-worth or self-satisfaction. So I just never go there because I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter if I know how they feel about me or how they think about me. Um, but I, I, I know for sure that I have, there's a bunch of people that work for us that really, um, have showed me a lot of care and love and grace over the years. I have several employees that have been with me for six, seven years. Um, you know, women that I think highly of that I feel like I've kind of grown up with here at our business. And, um, just like many great women, there are people that don't necessarily make it to events all the time. They don't really care about showing their skills out in the coffee world, but are people that I, that have really supported me over the years, both in our business and just through tough things in my personal life. And, um, you know, when you work with people closely, you really like live life with them in a lot of ways. Um, and so, um, I know for sure that our, our staff, a, a bunch of them really like care for John and I and, and show that to us on a regular basis, which I feel really grateful for. Do you ever feel like you're sort of thrusted into a particular role within the coffee industry because you happen to be a female leader? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, there, so I mentioned earlier the first year I went to USBC and I had, um, a beautiful coffee and I had that presentation. I felt like I could never top. And, um, that was, um, I don't remember what year it was. It was the year that, um, the amazing Charles Babinski took home the, took home the prize and there were no females in the finals that year. And I had a bunch of people come up and say like, Hey, like what, you should have made it or why didn't you make it or someone should have made it or, um, or whatever. And I, I was really new to that world at that time. And I just remember feeling like I knew why I didn't make it. I went over time and that was what killed my score, you know? So it was like, I kept having to say like, Hey, I agree with you. I would love to see, like, I wish there would have been a girl there too, but you know, if, for me personally, if I go out and I make a mistake, like I can't expect to go through, you know, like that, that's just not how it works. And so I remember particularly, that was kind of like the first time that I felt like I was in a position where people were kind of like wanting me to speak to, to speak to that. And I didn't feel qualified to speak for anyone else because I didn't know what the other women had or hadn't done. Um, but I knew for sure what, what I had, what I had done and that I didn't, I didn't score high enough to go there. And so, so I think, yeah, I think sometimes I, I feel like maybe people, um, like want me to have more of an opinion or want me to be more vocal perhaps about issues in our industry. And I, um, I don't know. It's not that I don't want to weigh in on those topics. It's more just that I feel that a person to person conversation is like so much more, um, able to make strides in various areas or, um, even in the world of competition, like me being able to present something like that maybe has, has more weight than other kinds of opinions I might have. So, so I definitely, yeah, I definitely think sometimes that I'm in a position that I don't always like want to be in or feel qualified to be in, but, um, I don't know. Sometimes that's just, that's just what happens when you put yourself out there. 
Yeah, something I think I admire a lot about you, and maybe this is like slightly controversial, is that like you seem to know the space that you occupy, if that makes sense. Like you operate a business, you buy green coffee, you have employees, and I appreciate that you speak to those issues really eloquently. Yeah. Because I think that that encompasses a lot of the issues that like that everybody faces especially marginalized people is that there are people who don't care about those things like if your boss only sees you as a barista who's expendable because baristas are expendable then like where are you ever going to go and it seems like that's kind of the opposite ethos that you have at onyx um and likewise you know you can do something about green coffee and if you haven't been to onyx's website um check it out. Every coffee has a transparency report that is incredibly detailed and they'll tell you how much every coffee was purchased for, what the coffee scored, what the relationship is like between Onyx and the farmer, um, in kind of very like no, no frills ways, which I also appreciate. Yeah. Um, thanks. I, we were, so excited to launch that part of our part of our website and that um honestly that came out of um (laughs) john being really like frustrated and angry at the industry for the way it operates in terms of its like secrecy and in terms of its like uh inability or unwillingness i'll say to to actually like just give real information to people so when we first started as a company, like we couldn't even get green samples sent to us. Like no one, and, and I, and I understand in a way, like nobody knew who we were. We were a brand new company. And so it was like, you know, we were like, Hey, we want to be a roaster. Like somebody like, well, how do we do this? And no one would talk to us. And so, um, actually it was Royal New York, a guy named Phil, um, who, was like the first person that would talk with John. He would talk with him on the phone as long as he needed. He would send us whatever samples we needed. Um, And so, you know, John was just sort of like, I'm just going to like start traveling to other countries and just like trying to find coffee. Like, I don't know. I don't know what else to do, but that seems like what I should do. So um, he sort of just like learned much of what he knows, like just by trial and error. And so, um, just in recent years, there's been, for us at least, and I think a lot of people, honestly, confusion and frustration over, like, someone says, like, oh, this coffee is fairly traded. Um, like, what what does that mean? Or this coffee is direct, or this coffee is whatever certification it is. It's like, okay, but what does that, but what does that actually mean? Um, and then just in our own cafes and when we do wholesale we'll have people they're like well I can't shop here anymore or I can't buy coffee from you anymore because you guys don't have uh, fair trade coffee you know and we're like oh okay well it's you're, you're right it's not technically like certified as fair trade but it's better than in our opinion like we we paid way more than if this coffee was a fair trade coffee and I mean I've actually had customers be like oh yeah prove it and it's like okay, like, uh, I will, or I'll try, you know? And so it's, we kind of just decided, we're like, you know what? Like, 
um, let's just put our stuff out there and let's just like put uh, producers' names on on things and like let's show exactly how we got this coffee, exactly what we paid for it. Um, and instead of trying to, to like argue for ourselves as in terms of like, no, no, we are fair. We are, we are ethical or, or we do pay more or we pay premiums or we pay, you know, it's like, uh, there's no like definition over those things that is, is universally, uh, regulated or accepted. So, so we're like, you know, we'll just like put our information out there and that way, <clears throat> you know, if a customer or a wholesale customer or a producer like has a question about, you know, whatever, like they can just literally see it on the website. And we were really nervous because I, part of our fear was like, what if our customers go to our website and see we paid $4 green for this coffee, but we're charging, you know, $16 for a retail bag? Like, are they going to understand markups? Like, are they going to understand like, well, we had to, we had a bag, we had a roaster, we had like a crew that put the coffee in the bag we had someone that drove it to the store you know like all those things um uh but it's been it's been really great and it's been really interesting because we've had a lot of really positive responses to it and um one of the things that was kind of that we didn't totally expect was we've we've gotten a lot of um producers that have contacted us and they're like um, oh really? Like that's what that coffee, that's what you actually paid for that coffee? Because I was only paid this much for that coffee or I know that producer, they live in my region and I think my coffee is as good as theirs, but I was only paid X amount for my coffee or, you know, sometimes, uh, a couple of times we've had producers that, um, like someone sees their name on our bag or our website and then, um, they're usually like Asian coffee roasters or people from in Asia and they have just kind of a different value system for coffee over there. And, and then we can never buy from that producer again because someone has like gone directly to them and has been like, Hey, I'm pay way more than they do and they can sell coffee for more in their market or whatever. Um, so it's had a lot of really interesting responses, but I think for us, we just wanted to be like, Hey, this is what we're, this is what we're doing. Like also if you're a new roaster or you're new to coffee and you're like, how much should I pay for green coffee? Like what, how, you know, how much does this cupped coffee sell for, uh, or whatever, like that it could be a reference point for, for other people that were like either trying to get started or maybe like just trying to get information because it's really, um, it's not the roasting world in some ways. Like I, I know our roaster Mark has a bunch of great relationships and they, he talks with roasters all the time about profiles and all kinds of things like that. But then in other ways, it's like if you ask someone a question, they just shut down and they don't want to answer any questions or share with you anything what they're doing. And we wanted to like just be the opposite of that. That's great. What That was such a great answer. Um, it was, it's, I don't ever know like how to refute like transparency with people. Like I wrote um, an article about wage transparency once and I actually had a lot of people argue with me about it. And it seems like if you're not afraid of anything, then like why would you want to keep it a secret? And something that I appreciate is that you mentioned that like farmers 
are able to see what they're being paid in comparison to like people in their region and might even like go somewhere else to get paid more. And that's okay. Like it's not about you just having an exclusive relationship. It's about improving prices all around. Yeah. And I think, I mean, particularly with the, um, I'm going to sound old, but the rise of the internet, (laughs) like when you go to origin, like, (laughs) Uh, producers have smartphones, like, and they have, you know, they're, like, talking to people on Facebook, and they're, you know, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them are are trying to figure out, like, how do I do this? Like, who do I sell to? How, how much can I sell this for? Uh, how can I make it better? How can I make it seem better? You know, all of those things, and so um, I've, we've definitely seen, um, seen some things, like you just mentioned, happen, like, where people... Um, see you know they see something or they hear something or they get information and they they use it and they contact those people and it's like much it's much different world than it was you know 10 years ago 20 years ago where producers like have never and many producers still don't taste their coffee but like you know at a certain juncture it's like certain producers have never tasted their coffee. They don't know what it's like. They don't know what it's actually selling for. They don't know what the roaster is selling it for once it finally gets to market. And, and those days are just coming, coming to an end in terms of people having access to, to what's going on. So going back to the idea of legacy, I, I know that you obviously talked about it in your routine, but just to kind of end things off, um, what do you want to be remembered as oh man I knew I I mean I already knew you were gonna ask me that and I've been thinking about it and it's like the same question that John kept asking me like when I was trying to make this presentation and um I just I just don't totally know how to answer that question um and I have lots of feelings about it but I will give an example from someone whom I admire that I mentioned earlier whose name is Donna Raquel who's a producer in Nariño um, and she's highly involved in the Foodom Association which has around 300 or more farmers that um, that work with them um, but really like what she's known for it, or at least what is talked about of her um, she started a program for women in her region that are um, at a disadvantage in their family life or however not financially they're not financially financially viable and she gave them uh, cows so that they could milk them and sell the milk and sell the products and um, that they could get some financial independence from their family situations and that that they could improve their lives and their communities. Um, and I just feel so that's just one of many things that she's done inside of her community, but I feel so, um, inspired by her because she is a very successful coffee producer. Um, and I actually had the chance to talk with her on the phone for about an hour back in November. And, um, She, she definitely talks some about coffee, um, and it's much like I, uh, the coffee I used in, com- in, in my presentation this year was from Pablo Guerra, and I also had a chance to talk with him on the phone, and what I thought was so uh, great about both of these producers is that, you know, I mean, they, they're interested in coffee, obviously, they produce great coffees, um, but when, when I asked them, like, 
what do they hope for the future and like what do they what do they want to see happen um, and where do they think you know their farm will be in however many years like they they weren't talking about coffee I mean they were just talking about their communities and how they could go about improving the lives of people around them and what they could do to make their uh, make their neighbors have better lives and I just feel like that I would love to to do that for my community and I'd love to do that for my staff and I'd love to do that for my for my family you know I'd love to be able to like contribute in some way that helps make their lives better in whatever way it might it might look that way so it'd probably be weird if I like gave all of our staff a cow but like <laughs> you know it's like find trying to find ways to like serve and empower them and help them like move to wherever they're going to be successful um and really just like trying to pour my life out into into other people's and then beyond that like I have no I have no idea like what what that might accomplish or what those people might accomplish someday but i I definitely believe that like I've been kind of like picked to be the person in the position that I'm currently in and that with that comes that responsibility to make sure that I'm I am pouring out and I am serving and I am like trying to do what I can to make things better for the for the people that I have contact with so I guess in terms of legacy I hope something like that happens that something like that comes across at some point but um, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. I feel like that, um, I'm going to do my best to accomplish those goals and, um, let the, let the rest lie where they may be. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Is there, is there a way that people can reach you if they want to reach out? Like, are you on social media at all or? Yeah, I am. Or you can also say a secret and no one can ever find you. That's fine too. <laughs> I'm like, call 911. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, yeah, I'm on social media. On Instagram is my main social media place. So it's Andrea Arkinsbro, which doesn't really make sense, but Very something I chose a while ago. No, it makes sense. And then, yeah, my email address is just Andrea, A N D R E A, at onyxcoffeelab.com. So people could reach out to me there. And yeah, that's, that's how to find me. Well, thank you again for talking to us. It was really like, for me, really eye-opening and inspirational just to hear you kind of lay it all out there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. Like I said earlier, it's an honor just to be asked to do this. And I really feel grateful for every opportunity that, that I have and, you know, um, doing competition it's like you get get this like 15 minutes to kind of like throw your ideas out there and so things like this are so great to be able to just like talk about it more in detail and um you know just like express more of what what I was trying to get across there here in this way because it's much um much easier to talk just to talk to someone about it than it is to make a presentation and so I thank you so much I feel really grateful that you asked me to do this so I'm grateful that you agreed. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
for Boss Barista, I'm Ashley Rodriguez. If you want to ask any questions from us, uh, we're at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. And we're also at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram. It's usually the best way to get in touch with us. Um, But for now, I'm Ashley Rodriguez, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.